KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. A force analysis task force may change police policy. They're going to be looking at incidents uh, with an eye toward any improvements that can be made to use of force training. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A San Diego clinic examines the mysteries of long COVID. It's really challenging. Many of the patients have almost PTSD-like symptoms because they've really had a traumatic experience dealing with the chronic illness and the way that it's really impacted their lives. Fast food and colonialism inspire a new work of classical music in California and a conversation about the best frights on film for your Halloween movie pleasure. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. The use of force by police is under scrutiny nationwide and is now being examined within the San Diego Police Department. The Force Analysis Unit is made up of San Diego police officers who have been tasked with reviewing each use of force reported by the SDPD. The findings are not intended to discipline individual officers, but rather to examine and possibly change police policies regarding use of force. This is a relatively new unit launched last May and the data is still being collected. Joining me is reporter David Hernandez who covers law enforcement, crime and public safety for the San Diego Union Tribune. And David, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. The SDPD already has an an internal affairs unit and that looks at police use of force events. So how does this unit differ from that? Yeah, so uh, for starters, this unit is going to look at all instances in which officers use force. Um, whereas the internal affairs unit um, looks mostly at uh, some cases that either um, led to complaints from the community or that officials internally decided to um, investigate. So this force analysis unit will look at all of those incidents, uh, regardless of whether they generated a complaint or not. And um, unlike the uh, internal affairs unit, they're going to be looking at incidents uh, with an eye toward any improvements that can be made to use of force training. They, they believe that if there are opportunities to improve, improve the way officers are trained, that that could potentially lead to an overall decrease in the number of times that officers use force. So that's the goal of the new task force to reduce the use of force incidents overall? 
Yes. So um, again, they're going to be looking at any ways to improve training and uh, all of that with the goal of reducing the number of times that officers uh, use force when they interact with the public. And what exactly constitutes use of force by police definition? Right. So it could be any time an officer uses pepper spray, a taser, a baton, um, and certainly their handgun, any of the tools that are on their belt. Um, it also includes any time that an officer points um, a handgun at an individual, even if they don't fire the weapon. So those are kind of the, the more commonly used um use of forces. There's also, you know, just going hands-on with an individual. Um, Those times are also considered uses of force. Now, when it comes to pointing a taser or a weapon at an individual, that I believe is called a show of force. What are those? And I, I believe that officers are now required to report those too. Right. So now officers are required to report what the police call a show of force. And that uh, pretty much constitutes any time an officer has a weapon out but doesn't use it. Um, and it doesn't just have to be a weapon, but it could include um, a police dog, for example. If, if they have a police dog on hand but don't let the, the dog loose on a person, that is considered a show of force. And um, like you mentioned, that previously wasn't something that the department tracked but now officers are required to report those instances. And this force analysis unit will look at those incidents of show of force to determine whether they played a role in any way in de-escalating a situation. Right, because the police department says that the show of force techniques are designed to de-escalate a situation, but that's not always how it's interpreted, is it? No. So police uh, certainly consider a show of force a de-escalation tactic in certain instances, and they point to cases where an officer might point a taser at someone and that resolves the situation and, you know, an officer didn't have to use force. Um, Some community members, however, push back against that because they believe that uh, pointing a, a taser, pointing any kind of weapon at someone could escalate a situation, Um, you know, using a police dog, for example, could force an individual to want to defend themselves. So there is a little bit of a pushback in that in that regard. Now, what's been the reaction of the groups representing police officers, such as the San Diego Police Officers Association? Are they in favor of this type of, of scrutiny? The police union is actually um, pretty receptive to this idea. Um, I was curious, you know, how they would react. But um, I think that they understand that this is something that benefits uh, the community, but also police officers in that uh, police like officers are less likely to be injured if they are less likely to be engaging in, in force. So, they, they said that they feel like any way to improve training on use of force is a good thing. As I understand it, even before the new task force, the city had already been tracking use of force incidents. How long have police been collecting that information? And kind of across the board, what did they find? Yeah, so it, it's been now years since the police department has, has been tracking uh, use of force and there were quite a few takeaways. Um, Like other studies, um, the data shows that Black communities in particular are disproportionately impacted whenever officers use force. Um, They use a 
greater amount of force on black communities um, than any other uh, community groups or ethnicities. And um, some other interesting findings from our review of, of the police department data was that, you know, the, the most commonly used types of forces were physical strength. So whenever an officer goes hands-on with an individual or actually just pointing a, a gun at an individual was also uh, the second most common use of force. Is there any word when we might get the results of the data collected by the force analysis unit? So that's a really interesting question because the department said that it's going to be exploring ways to share the data or their findings. Um, They didn't necessarily commit to sharing all of the information that they uncover. So we're going to be keeping an eye on just how much information they release and community groups, including the police commission, even national policing Uh, Advocacy groups have called for departments to be pretty transparent about data like this and to make it accessible. There's no word currently as to when the department will release information, if any at all. So we're going to be keeping an eye on that. Okay, then I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune reporter David Hernandez. David, thank you. Thank you again. One of the biggest mysteries of the COVID-19 pandemic has been the phenomenon of long COVID. Months after infection, people with lingering COVID symptoms, known as long haulers, have struggled to regain their health. And while patients and doctors alike were initially baffled by these long-term symptoms, a lot has been learned since they were first recorded in patients early in the pandemic. Dr. Lucy Horton is an infectious disease specialist at UCSD who's seen the toll long COVID can take on the body. She runs a clinic that specializes in post-COVID care and joins us now. Dr. Horton, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Do we know now why some people are afflicted with long COVID as opposed to others? It's really a great question. And I think it's one um, of the biggest challenges that we're facing is we still don't have a great sense of what predisposes some people to developing long COVID. What we do know is that people who tend to have more symptoms during their acute infection tend to go on to develop uh, long COVID, but there's so much left uh, to be learned. What have you been seeing with your patients? I mean, what kinds of treatments work? Really, the treatments that work best are those that target specific symptoms that patients are having. Um, For example, patients who may have developed asthma-like symptoms respond well to asthma medications. Patients who have uh, difficulty with their heart rate and blood pressure, also known as uh, autonomic dysfunction, they may respond well to medications specifically targeting that symptom. In general, what we think really uh, works best and what we've seen in our patient cohort is rehabilitation is really kind of the best. Um, that can take the form of pulmonary rehab, physical therapy, even cognitive retraining. Is there any kind of consensus as to what factors lead to long-term COVID symptoms? That is really such a great question, and it's an active area of research right now. The underlying pathophysiology or mechanisms driving long COVID are still unknown, but we do know that 
people with long COVID tend to have ongoing abnormalities in some of their immune and inflammatory responses, similar to what may be seen in chronic viral infections. Um, We know that there is what we call endothelial dysfunction or disruption of the the barrier of blood vessels, and that probably uh, contributes to many of the symptoms as well. But I think the majority of us I think that it's probably multifactorial and that there's many different things at play leading to all of these different symptoms. How have your patients emotionally processed having to deal with these symptoms for an extended period of time? It's really challenging. Many of the patients are facing a lot of emotional distress. Many of them have almost PTSD-like symptoms because they've really had a traumatic experience dealing with the chronic illness and the way that it's really impacted their lives. So caring for a patient with long COVID, it's really important to understand kind of their psychosocial stressors and offer them um, that type of therapy and emotional support resources as well. Is there any sense that long haul COVID symptoms will one day go away? I'm optimistic that the majority of patients will have a meaningful recovery based on what we know of other kind of chronic post-viral syndromes from other types of viruses. But in reality, we just don't know for sure. And we know that some patients have had symptoms now for the better part of a year and a half with not a lot of recovery. And so there probably will be some who continue to have symptoms for the rest of their life. But since this is such a new virus and we've only um, known it for less than two years, it's really hard to say. Do we know what percentage of patients infected with COVID end up suffering from long-term symptoms? It's roughly 10 to 30%. And it tends to be more in patients who actually had milder COVID, who are not hospitalized, who are not in the ICU. Does vaccination lower the chance of long-haul symptoms at all? Really wonderful question. And there's some emerging research that vaccination may help prevent long COVID. There was recently a study published in the Lancet Journal of Infectious Diseases, uh, where they were actually looking at um, how vaccine would prevent uh, breakthrough infections. But what's interesting is um, in monitoring the patient cohort, they tracked them out to a month after their infection. And they did find that those who were fully vaccinated, so had received both doses of the mRNA vaccine, uh, were less likely to still have symptoms after a month. So that's suggestive that the vaccine does, in fact, uh, help prevent development of long COVID. Does it have any role in the treatment of long haul COVID? This is, again, something that um, we're just getting kind of preliminary um, evidence of now. Um, There's some emerging um, studies coming out um, showing that um, those who receive vaccination had a higher chance of having complete remission of their symptoms, about almost twice that of those who are unvaccinated. How has our our understanding of how COVID can affect the body long-term changed since the beginning of the pandemic? I think we know so much more about the myriad of symptoms. I think um, we're better able to diagnose it, better able to understand who may benefit from specific therapies. Um, We're learning that 
COVID seems to unmask um, other conditions. And so we're seeing a lot of our patients now being diagnosed with things like asthma or reflux or apnea. So we're able to um, look for and ask the right questions to understand um, the whole range of symptoms that patients are having. Um, and I think we know a lot more too about um, the role that rehab and therapy can play um, in this condition. But honestly, I still think we're at the tip of the iceberg in terms of um, the full knowledge and understanding of long COVID. I've been speaking with Dr. Lucy Horton, an infectious disease specialist at UCSD Health. Dr. Horton, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news, events, and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another has it. This is Port of Entry. The Parker Edison Project. Listener supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcast and for being part of our region's virtual public square, where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Earlier this month, Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed a bill that would have decriminalized jaywalking when no cars are present. The bill was aimed at tackling racial disparities in how jaywalking laws are enforced. KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen looks at how those disparities exist in San Diego. Wait! We've all done it. You're trying to cross the street, but the light is taking forever. Or maybe the nearest crosswalk is an absurdly long detour. No cars are around, so you look both ways and jaywalk. Most of the time, it's harmless. And most of the time, getting a ticket for jaywalking isn't a big concern. That's not how things played out for Robert Don Moyer. Well, I think it was, I think it was May 3rd. Uh, I was coming back from the dentist. It was midday, and I um, walked across the street here. Don Moyer says he wasn't jaywalking. He was in the crosswalk and says he made it to the other side of Robinson Avenue in Hillcrest before the red hand signal went from flashing to solid. But a San Diego police officer says he was jaywalking and wrote him a ticket. She told him police were stepping up jaywalking enforcement because of a rise in pedestrian collisions. I didn't want to debate it, but I said, gee, I, I, I haven't seen much of that, particularly in the daytime here. Uh, I, I have seen lots of people blatantly running red lights, and I've almost been hit on a number of occasions by people blatantly running led, red lights when I had the right to cross, and I've learned to be very, very cautious. Don Moyer plans on contesting his ticket in a trial next year. 
Bogus or not, his jaywalking ticket was one of more than 5,000 given to pedestrians in San Diego since 2015, and those tickets disproportionately targeted black people. 16% of the tickets went to blacks, even though they make up only 6% of the city's population. Similar racial disparities exist in cities across California. Black people are disproportionately affected by almost every type of criminalization. Anne Rios is an attorney and executive director of Uprise Theater, a nonprofit that educates people on their legal rights. She says the disparities are proof of racial bias among San Diego police officers. Black people are also overrepresented in the homeless community, which she says is a frequent target of jaywalking tickets. And blacks are more likely to live in neighborhoods that lack safe and abundant crosswalks. So when you're dealing with a landscape that doesn't have safe areas for you to cross the street anyway, jaywalking is going to become acceptable or the norm. The true issue is that the community doesn't have the appropriate support for for pedestrian travel. Racial justice activists like Rios have been trying to decriminalize jaywalking in California for years. They say jaywalking laws only punish behavior that's usually logical and safe. But the latest effort at decriminalization failed this month with Governor Gavin Newsom's veto of AB 1238. That bill would have legalized jaywalking as long as there's no oncoming traffic. It was opposed by law enforcement groups, who said it would encourage unsafe pedestrian behavior, and the California Coalition for Children's Safety and Health. Here's that group's program director, Steve Barrow, speaking at a Senate committee hearing in June. We need children growing up understanding how to appropriately get through our really busy streets. And that is adhering to red lights, crossing at the crosswalks, not jaywalking, and uh, paying attention to all the pedestrian traffic safety laws. Robert Don Moyer, who's white and works as a university professor, acknowledges he has privileges that others who get jaywalking tickets probably don't have. He can take time off work to fight his ticket in court, and he knew to look up the exact California vehicle code violation to see if it matches what really happened. He's ambivalent about whether jaywalking should be legalized, but he doesn't think tickets and fines are an effective way to protect pedestrians. You know, I couldn't help but wonder, were they trying to uh, beef up revenue? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't mean, I'm not accusing because I don't really know, but it was certainly a thought that crossed my mind, particularly when I saw the amount of the, of the ticket. That amount he'll have to pay if he loses in court, $197. Joining me is KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, welcome. Hi, Maureen. Thanks. It seems that crossing in the middle of an empty street would be very different from a pedestrian dodging traffic to run across the street. So would both actions, though, make you liable for a jaywalking ticket? Yes. Under current law, it doesn't matter if the streets are completely empty or if it's rush hour and they're full of cars. Both are, can get you a ticket if an officer catches you and chooses to write you a ticket, as opposed to maybe giving you a warning. And in reporting this story, I actually spoke with a small number of people who shared their experiences of getting tickets for jaywalking. One of them was a young man who got a ticket while he was walking home from a bar in Pacific Beach. Uh, it was pretty late at night and there were no cars around whatsoever. It was also on a an intersection where there's not a lot of through traffic. It certainly begs the question, who is this harming? you know, and, and is what's the severity of that harm? And is a ticket of around $200 commensurate with that harm? There was another young woman that I spoke with who was ticketed for jaywalking, and she was allowed to do community service. Judges can allow that as an alternative to a fine if 
you can prove it would be an undue financial burden on you. Uh, and her community service, ironically, was picking up trash on the side of the road, which kind of put her in danger of getting hit by a car, which ostensibly is what jaywalking criminalization is meant to deter people from doing. Some advocates claim jaywalking tickets can be used as a form of harassment. Why is that? Well, Anne Rios, who you heard from in uh, my story, formerly worked for a nonprofit called Think Dignity, which advocates for people experiencing homelessness and often represents them and defends them in court. And she put jaywalking in the same category as a crime like encroachment, which is blocking the public right of way. You know, police can issue tickets to unsheltered people who might be uh, staying in tents on the sidewalk. And she describes these crimes as tools by police to keep homeless people out of certain areas because they're undesirable. Police can also use jaywalking as a pretext to question an individual that they may be, uh, suspect is involved in other kinds of criminal activities. They can use it to initiate what's called a consent search, where the police officer lacks a warrant, they lack probable cause to actually search someone, but if a person doesn't know that they can refuse to be searched by the police, they may just agree to it and, and police may find drugs or other kinds of contraband. So jaywalking, like other kinds of minor traffic violations, or other sort of quality of life crimes can become a, a dragnet for police essentially to target different types of people or different communities. Now you did a report recently on how San Diego is nowhere near reaching its goal of zero auto deaths and injuries. Is jaywalking one of the reasons why? It's certainly the case that pedestrians may miscalculate how fast a car is approaching on a street if they're jaywalking and they may get hit and seriously injured or even killed. If that's the case, police often attribute the death to jaywalking alone. They will say the pedestrian was at fault. They may not factor into account other things like how fast the person was driving, whether they may have been looking at the phone while they were driving or if they're distracted in other ways. Those things are really hard to prove and may get left out of the conversation, particularly if the pedestrian is dead or if they're hospitalized before the police can question them. They never get to tell their side of the story. The other factor, I think, is that urban planners are really starting to see jaywalking is a symptom of poor pedestrian infrastructure. So if walking to the nearest crosswalk is going to add five or 10 minutes to your trip. It's a kind of logical thing. And as I said in the start of the story, most of us have done this before. And that's why advocates for safer streets see the criminalization of jaywalking as just ineffective at protecting pedestrians, especially when you compare it to safer infrastructure like streetlights, crosswalks, and traffic calming to just slow down cars. And is this lack of pedestrian infrastructure a problem in San Diego? Absolutely. You know, you can put a number on it even. These are um, factored into the city's infrastructure deficit, how much the city needs to add and um, repair streetlights or um, other types of, uh, you know, crosswalks, things like that. You wouldn't know necessarily that it's um, actually legal to cross a street in an unmarked crosswalk at an intersection. I live in University Heights, which is, as far as San Diego goes, a fairly privileged area. And we don't even have, you know, marked crosswalks at a lot of the intersections or stop signs to uh, either ask cars to slow down or stop. And in places like uh, City Heights or Southeast San Diego, where, you know, that have been historically underinvested in, not only do they lack crosswalks, they may also lack sidewalks. So pedestrian infrastructure is absolutely a problem. And it's a result of decades of the city public officials and our budgets prioritizing the speed of cars and the convenience of driving over the safety of everyone on the road. So because the decriminalization bill was not signed into law, Jaywalk 
walking can still get you, as you mentioned, a very expensive ticket in California. Is there any effort on the local level to cut down on the number of jaywalking tickets issued? Well, Mayor Todd Gloria has said or said earlier this year that he wants to work with advocates to define what pretext stops are and clarify when they can be used by police. Um, as I mentioned, jaywalking is, is often grouped into those types of criminal statutes that police can use as a pretext stop. It's unclear, however, whether jaywalking would be a part of that conversation or if it would, you know, any action that uh, Mayor Gloria may ultimately take would impact jaywalking tickets. The mayor could direct police to deprioritize uh, citing pedestrian violations um, and prioritize motorists instead. Uh, I, I've looked at the data and there are actually many more jaywalking tickets issued over the last five Five years than um, citations for, uh, say, motorists not uh, yielding to pedestrians or exercising due care when pedestrians are present. The city attorney's office could also decline to prosecute jaywalking tickets because they handle misdemeanors and infractions. And so, you know, they could use their prosecutorial discretion to just say, these are not crimes that we believe are important to prosecute. But I don't see that happening anytime soon, honestly. I've been speaking with KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, thank you. Thank you, Maureen. A piece of classical music is examining California's colonial history and our state's long and complex relationship with Mexico. Gabriela Ortiz is a Grammy Award-winning composer. She's from Mexico, but she's a familiar presence in California's classical music scene. She's gotten high-profile commissions from the L.A. Philharmonic, the Long Beach Opera, and the Ojai Festival. The new flute concerto is called Mi Colonial Californiano. A lot of things can inspire a piece of music, dramatic vistas, broken hearts, but as KQED's Chloe Veltman tells us, this new piece is inspired by a California fast food chain. The new flute concerto is part of an event exploring the legacy of El Camino Real, the colonial name for the ancient byway dotted with missions that stretched from the Mexican border to Northern California. These ringing sounds aren't really meant to evoke the bells of the old Camino Real missions, at least not directly. But wait, crispy bacon and fluffy eggs might just be better. There's only one delicious reason to wave the perfect dream farewell. The sooner you wake, the sooner you'll get toasted breakfast burritos, only at Taco Bell. If you see the logo of Taco Bell, it's a bell that reminds you the, the missions, but in a very, you know the modern or pop way. Yep, you heard right. Over a Zoom call from her home in Mexico City, composer Gabriela Ortiz tells me the fast food chain, founded by an American named Glenn Bell in California in the 1960s, partly inspired her new work. Nothing that's serving Taco Bell is really Mexican food, but it's not American too. It's becoming something new. And this is the point. This postmodern homage to California's fast food culture isn't all that far-fetched. Taco Bell's crispy chicken sandwich tacos or cheesy fiesta potatoes come from a hodgepodge of influences, and what we know as El Camino Real is really just a mixed-up fantasy of an idealized California. So the mission uh, past becomes kind of the founding story of the Anglos. Robert Senkowitz is a history professor at Santa Clara University. 
He says white people in Southern California at the turn of the last century came up with the notion of a so-called royal road as a way of romanticizing the past. It was a past which emphasized heroic missionaries, happy, contented Indians, fandangos all over the place, you know, wonderful ranchos, and, and sort of a lotus land of, of contentment and bliss where everybody was, was happy. Senkowitz says the Automobile Association soon glommed on to this idea as a way to get people to go on road trips up and down the California coast. They began to push the notion that the missions were located uh, a day's journey from each other, you know, which kind of, when you think about it, makes them motels rather than what they actually were, agents of assimilation of the native peoples. The absurdity of all of this isn't lost on composer Gabriela Ortiz. In writing her new concerto, she says she was inspired by the Taco Bell sign, as well as other bits of California architecture influenced, however questionably, by El Camino Real. So it was interesting in this dialogue that goes and comes between U.S. and Mexico and how, you know, the Californians see Mexico or how Mexico sees California. The title of Ortiz's concerto is De Colonial Californiano. It's a reference to the Colonial Californiano architectural style, which borrows from the historic missions by way of California. The Camino Real influenced the Colonial Californiano architecture. As the daughter of an architect, Ortiz knows about the subject intimately. This section of the concerto is titled Mission Revival Nostalgia. It references a similar style to Colonial Californiano that became popular north of the border. The easygoing triplets on flute, harp and vibraphone evoke Californians' sentimental feelings about the white stucco walls, stone arches and red clay tile roofs of the old mission buildings. You can see a more modern riff on the style today in places like the Andalusia building in Santa Barbara and the Stanford University campus. And in the section titled Morisco Ornaments, a curlicue solo flute line tinged with Arabic sounding scales alludes to the intricate Moorish style embellishments that can be found on some 20th century Californian and Mexican buildings. The Alcazar Theatre in San Francisco and the Shrine Auditorium in LA are good examples of the style. There's a cultural appropriation going on on both sides. So American architects stole things from Spain and Mexico and then Mexicans steal the fake, so to speak. That's Luis Hoyos. He's an emeritus professor of architecture at California State Polytechnic University, Pomona. He comes from Tijuana. Once the fake has been built in California, we steal it and we build it for cheaper in Mexico. Hoyos says architectural history can tell us a lot about how cultures collide. Buildings do talk, and what we put in them and how we use them is another language that gets examined. The concerto ends just as it begins, with a haunting flute passage. After making fun of the copycat architectural back and forth between Mexico and the US, composer Gabriela Ortiz evokes an era before all those mission-style buildings appeared. And no musical instrument expresses the spirit of pre-colonial times better than the flute, with its deep indigenous roots. For The California Report, I'm Chloe Veltman.
Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. It's Halloween season, so we are gathering our Midday Movies crew to recommend some appropriate viewing options. Everyone defines horror differently, so these selections reflect some very different options. Joining me today is KPBS arts reporter and cinema junkie host Beth Accomando and Movie Wallace's podcaster Yazdi Patavla. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so we're we're looking to pick one new film, one old film, and one series to binge on. First, let's start with new. Beth, what do you recommend? Well, I decided I wanted to recommend something that revisits kind of familiar territory, but gives it a fresh spin. So Shudder is showcasing a film called The Medium, which is a Thai horror film, and essentially it's a possession tale. So we've seen a lot of these movies about evil spirits and demons possessing someone and then an exorcism. But generally speaking, these exorcism films deal with the Catholic Church and a priest. So this puts us in Thailand and the rituals and ceremonies are completely different. The sense of how demons or, you know, evil spirits exist in the world has a different sensibility. So it feels like you're kind of getting a familiar story, but with a very fresh perspective. And I just thought it was great. Yazdi, uh, what about you? What's uh, What do you recommend as a new horror film? So my pick is a movie from 2017, and it's by the director Yorgos Lanthimos, who has made a career out of making films which are oddly disquieting and disturbing. Uh, he made movies such as Dogtooth and The Lobster, and then more recently The Favorite, which won a whole bunch of Oscars. I think The Killing of a Sacred Deer was somewhat under appreciated when it was released. And what I really like about this film is that it creates its own absurd rules, but then sticks by those rules and sees it through to the end. And uh, nominally, the movie is about this very famous cardiac surgeon played by Colin Farrell and his wife played by Nicole Kidman. And uh, they have their kids. And unbeknownst to his wife, the husband starts befriending this teenage boy who we find out has a relationship to his past. And very soon, strange things start happening to his kids. And so this movie sits squarely in the area of children in peril, sort of paying for your past sins. But more than anything else, this movie just made me so uncomfortable and so unnerved, genuinely unnerved, that I think it takes uh, some degree of skill to do that. The other thing about that film is it taps into a different aspect of horror that sometimes gets focused on. So a lot of horror films are about jump scares. This is about building dread, which is a much more, I think, effective means of horror and much more disturbing and uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, I mean, I would say it's kind of rare these days. So many horror movies come out. And it is sort of just, it's a slasher flick or something along those lines. And they've not taken the time to really develop the storyline. There's not a a large investment in that, I don't think. I mean, I don't know. What do you guys think? 
Yeah, I mean, I think horror works best if you care about the characters, um, because that's where you really get the tension and the discomfort. If you're not invested in the characters or care about them to some degree, there's no tension because you just don't care what happens to them. So I think building the sense of dread takes a lot more craft. And for me personally, it's a more disquieting sense of horror that lingers with me long after I've left the theater. Mm. Yasti, where can listeners uh, catch uh, The Killing of a Sacred Deer? It's streaming right now on Netflix. Ah, okay. So so now let's, let's move on to old. Uh, Beth, what's your recommendation for an old movie? Sure, because there's an excellent new Candyman film out right now that taps into the original film, I am going to suggest that people go check out the original 1992 Candyman, if only for Tony Todd's incredible performance. But the new Candyman, unlike the Halloween Kills film, which is out now, really understands how to build on the previous film, take the mythology of it, expand on it, make it more contemporary, make it tap into our current events in a really effective way. And going back to see the original one makes the new one even better. So I highly recommend going back. This is based on a Clive Barker story. It has an excellent score by Philip Glass. It was directed by Bernard Rose. And it really is an exceptional horror film and one of the first to give us an iconic black horror figure in it. And Tony Todd is just fabulous. Yazdi, what's your recommendation for an old film for Halloween season? I kind of, for my old older movie pick, I went to David Cronenberg, who is another master of uh, creating films which genuinely unsettle you. And, you know, he's he's done more than a share of making odd, complex, stunning, disquieting movies. And I really like The Fly because this was a movie which was released in 1986. It's uh, based on a short story from uh, 1957, uh, which was subsequently in 1958 made into a movie. And this is his uh, remake of that movie. To me, at least, it was my first introduction to body horror (laughs) uh, in that we are so used to being obviously attached to our body and, you know, being, being who we are. And to see somebody's body disintegrate or to see really unexpected things happen to to somebody's body can be very, very unsettling. And this movie is like a masterclass in it. It's about uh, this uh, eccentric uh, scientist uh, uh, played by Jeff Goldblum, who, after a bungled experiment, uh, starts to mutate into this human fly kind of hybrid creature. And... You know, Cronenberg is at peak form and the movie has this psychosexual undertone. And at the same time, it very deliberately gets very close to, you know, as as the transformation is happening, it gets very close to the body. And I, I remember just being so shaken by that movie when I watched it. And it's interesting, the new Candyman movie also taps into some of those body horror issues. But Uh, For me, The Fly is kind of the epitome of that. I remember seeing it, and it made my skin crawl the entire time. (laughs) Just as Uh, it should. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. All right. Let's move to a binge-worthy series. Um, What would you guys recommend for something that's binge-worthy? 
Well, for me, hands down, I would go to Mindhunter, which is a David Fincher series. Sadly, it kind of ended without a resolution, and there's still possible talk of it being finished. But this is based on a true story of these guys in the FBI who started the Behavioral Science Division, which is to kind of make sense out of serial killers. And what I love about this film is that the most disturbing scenes tend to be the interviews with the serial killers, which are taking place inside prisons mostly. Nothing overtly scary, no gory scenes of murders, sometimes not even talking about the murders, but it's just this entering a mind of somebody who is capable of these horrific crimes and realizing just kind of like how different they are in terms of how they perceive the world. Those scenes are just chilling. I mean, you can feel like the hairs on your arms, you know, raise and you get goosebumps because you're you feel like you're witnessing something truly terrifying. And because it's rooted in the real world, it's even more scary. So I, I love that series. And that's all the signs of a good series to binge watch, especially if you're going to binge watch a horror series. Um, Mindhunter is on Netflix, as is your pick, Yazdi. Tell me about it. Yes, so my pick is a series which hardly requires more publicity. It's the one that everybody's watching right now, and it is Squid Game. Squid Game, within 15 days of being dropped on Netflix, became their most watched show ever, which is incredible considering their past with uh, a number of remarkable, well-regarded, well-watched series. And yes, you know, Squid Game is kind of Battle Royale or Hunger Games meets Agatha Christie's and then there were none. Yes, it is brutal and violent and exceptionally entertaining. But I think if you set all that entertainment pieces aside, what remains still in the series is what interests me, which is it has a few things to say about class, about racial hierarchy in Korea, about capitalism, of course. And, you know, in that way, it, it is similar to the film Parasite, which won a whole bunch of awards a couple of years ago. But I, I think the reason why this series has really resonated worldwide, not just in the US and Korea, but worldwide, um, I think is because the idea of, you know, a whole bunch of people who are forced to play a game to which they may not necessarily know all the rules very well, as a consequence of which many of them can die, I think is draws a lot of parallel to the whole pandemic experience we are going through right now, where we are sort of trying to, we were trying to understand where we are and we didn't know how to play the rules of the pandemic and people were just, you know, seemingly dying, you know, without reason. So I think it's kind of tapped into our state of being right now. And I, I just loved how the series, as, as well put together as it is, it takes a lot of time with building these characters and peels them layer by layer so you understand them. And then it uses a lot of genius in terms of how even those very beloved characters get dispatched. So, you know, I can't wait to watch it again. I'm not a big horror fan. I'm scared of gore and so forth. But in spite of that, I watched it and... I like like everybody else on the planet. I am quite thrilled with it. 
I'm uh, three episodes in on Squid Games. It's intense, and the parallels that you can draw from it are really the true horror in it, mm -hmm. uh, for sure. But uh, I really appreciate you guys' picks and your, your suggestions. Well, thank you. Thank you much.